Well, good morning. Great to see you guys here and online. Welcome to Northland. I, I tell you what, what a great treat it was to be able to hear from Vernon uh, and uh, continue to pray for Pastor Vernon. And we're looking forward to hearing from here, him here in about a month, hopefully. He'll be able to be here to, to teach. Well, if you're new to Northland, this is a great time to be new to Northland because we are beginning another chapter of this story called Northland Church. It's part of the great story of God's agenda on this planet. Building on 40 years of, of rich legacy and ministry, now we are moving into this next chapter being led by a vision statement we believe that God has helped us shape and it's rooted in the gospel. That vision statement is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. I don't know where you are in your journey in terms of with Christ. Maybe you're approaching this from a distance, not even a follower of Christ, or maybe you are a follower of Christ, but things have grown stale and maybe, uh, or, or it could be that you're riding high, things are, are, are clicking. That vision statement draws all of us in because it's the gospel. And, but it's not just a statement that we're to help the church come uh, kind of become successful with. A vision statement for a movement is something that applies to me personally as well as to us corporately. But it applies to us not just to recite it. Just saying it and not understanding it is, is not the goal here. I mean, a number of years ago when I was in college, so I don't know, whatever, 15, 17 years ago, um, I lived in Europe for a couple of years. I studied over there, and one of the places that I studied was a Bible institute in the northern part of England. It's sponsored by a group called the Torchbearers. Major Ian Thomas wrote a book called The Saving Life of Christ. It had a deep impact on me. It's about the life of Christ in the gospel, and actually is, is, is part of the undergirding, I'm sure, of this, this vision has a place called Cape and Ray Hall, many, many uh, Bible institutes around the world, but one of the, the largest is Cape and Ray Hall there. And I studied there and then they asked me, I was in college, but they said, hey, would you come back for the summer and be our program director for our summer conference ministry? I said, sure. And so what they did is they converted the great hall. It's like, a, we'd call it a castle here in America. It's a, a country home that had been converted into the school. They converted that into a conference center, basically, for week-long conferences throughout the summer for kids to come over, for teenagers predominantly, to come over from the, uh, from the continent, mainly Germans. It was predominantly German-speaking kids that would come all summer. And Christian-based teaching and activities was gospel-centered in so many ways. And one of the ways it was marketed to the students is it's a, it's a way for you to, to learn English. It's a way for you to work on your English skills, and it's also a place for you to get the gospel. So they had a lot of unbelievers who would come, uh, and they're coming primarily to learn English. And then uh, along the way, they would come in contact with the gospel. It's a great idea, great program. So the first group came the beginning of the summer and they arrived on Saturday and Saturday night. I stood up to give them this couple of hundred, about 200 of them, to give them their orientation. Talked about what the week was going to be about. Talked about why we were glad that they were here. Talked about how they could best benefit. Talked about the various rules that we needed them to abide by in order for it to be a healthy experience for everyone. And I emphasize several parameters and they're, they're nodding and looking at me and say, have a great week. And that basically was the beginning of one of the most awful summer weeks I've ever had. I mean, these kids were terrors, and they were doing, you, they, can't, they were so creative in the ways they could break the rules, and, uh, and the way that they did it is through speaking, even right in my presence, speaking German to each other. So they were scheming, not just behind my back, but to my front, because I didn't understand German, so they would say, hey, do this, do that, and it was like, uh, you know, that movie, Kindergarten Cop, long ago, or the uh, Arnold, I, I didn't say that in any of the other services. I don't know why, I just thought of that, but where he's staying in the midst of these kids that are just running around and just screaming. I was feeling like that. About Wednesday, I said, there's no way I'm going to go through an entire summer uh, like this. This is miserable. 
So I came up with an idea, and I got one of our other staff, who was from Germany. I said, uh, here's a paragraph, and it was a, a lengthy paragraph, actually it was maybe a, an entire page. And I said, would you translate that, this into German? And then I want to learn it. I'm going to memorize it. And then I want you to coach me on accents and slang, and uh, you make it as, as, as teenage-friendly as you can. He said, all right. So he put it together. It took him an, just a couple hours. It wasn't long because he was fluent in both English and German. He brought it back to me, and then I memorized it. And then he coached me, and I said it, and I said it over and over to the point that I was saying it just about perfect. My German was just about flawless, and the accents were in the right places and so forth. So the terrors left on Saturday morning, and the new group came in on Saturday afternoon. And that night, we had our orientation, and I stood up before this group of a couple of hundred German teenagers, and I gave them my speech in German. I started out that way, greeted them in German walk them through what a great week it was going to be, what we were going to be doing, why we were glad they were there. I said all the things I'd said the week before. I even walked through the different parameters and why these were rules were necessary for the health of the community. All the while, I'm saying this in perfect German, and they're listening to me. And then at the very end, I said, now, I know one of the reasons many of you have come is to work on your English skills. Therefore, this will be the last time you will hear me speak German this week. Because <laughs> I want you to learn English just as bad as you want to learn English. And so, uh, and I'll call you on it. So they're all nodding, and we embark into the week. And I had one other sentence that I had memorized, courtesy of my, my buddy. And it was this, whenever I would hear them speaking German, I'd call out in comfortable slang, hey guys, remember, no, no German. We're speaking English, we want you to learn English. So turn it around, let's, talk, let's speak English. I'm not going to speak German with you. And so they would shut up and speak to me in English. So the entire week, they're thinking, I understand everything they are saying. So as a result, there was no scheming, there were no plots to, for my downfall, there were no pranks behind my back. It was awesome, even though I didn't understand a word of English, I mean a word of German. <laughs> Later in the summer, this guy, this buddy of mine and another one of our friends, she spoke, they were both from Germany, they came to me and said, this German thing you're doing is working tremendously. I mean, uh, and, but the thing is, your German is perfect. You really could, uh, I mean, you need, to, you need to learn German because you're speaking perfect, but we want you, we love our country and our culture, and you would, if you would just learn the language, we'll teach it to you. You can get our culture down and understand the nuances and why particular words. They just wanted me to appreciate what I was saying, not just say it. And I took a couple of lessons from them. I got, I got it, but time permitted, prevented me from doing much more than that. So bottom line, I spoke the language, but I didn't understand the beauty, the nuances, the significance of it. Let's translate to church. Yeah, we can go ahead to this vision statement, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's not a matter of just knowing those words. It's a matter of understanding them and understanding the unveiling that's ongoing because the Spirit of God is igniting the Word of God to, to flesh this vision out in us in days, weeks, months, years to come. But I also want you to back up if you grew up in church you know that what I'm just describing about me speaking German happens in a religious way to people. We learn, we come to church and we learn the language. We learn the key phrases, we learn a few cliches. We say them. I almost was gonna bring up some of my favorite Christian cliches and thought, I better not do it because 
I might be making fun of it, and it might be one of your favorite cliches, and uh, therefore I don't want to offend you. But we've got all of these phrases that we'll, we'll use that identify us to one another, say, I'm one of you. And if you grew up in church, you don't even realize it's happening. And after a while, we've got these, uh, these, these phrases, and we come to church. We stare at the back of somebody's head for a while, and then we leave. And so we're, we're doing the church thing, and it's, it's like me speaking to those German kids, trying to convince them that I'm one of them. And we do the church thing, convincing each other we're one of us, but we're just going through the motions. We just have the words, as Paul talks about to the Corinthians, we have words without power. And he says, the kingdom of God is a matter of power, not just words. It's a matter of understanding what I'm saying and going behind just the practices, the traditions of my church, the behavior, going behind just the truths, the doctrines of my church and understanding the essence. And the thing I'm so excited about regarding this vision statement is it gets to the essence of the gospel. Let me review just a little bit of where we've been in case you're just joining us, but it'll, it'll set the stage for what we're going to look at today. We've been talking about our longings. You see, a lot of times we don't relate the gospel to our longings. We just go through the motions. We learn a few phrases. But for me to go deeper means for me to embrace my longings. Jesus talking to that woman at the well that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. He said, John 4, verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will come, will come in them, a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. He says, what you're thirsty for ultimately is eternal life. So all of these longings that are common to us as human beings, not just religious people, but all of us, things like longings for things like significance and intimacy and love and security and wholeness and purpose and shalom and truth, beauty, goodness, joy, triumph, justice, resolution, meaning, the list goes on and on and on. Those are all rivers and tributaries coming out of this great ocean of the gospel, this gospel of life. And Jesus says, that's what you're all thirsty for. It's why he said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That doesn't mean pasting on a smile. It doesn't mean everything's always happy, but it means I'm fully engaged with my journey underneath his kingship, his leadership, his enablement. The disciples gave their lives for this gospel. John, it's one of my favorites. You guys know uh, what his nickname was? He and his brother James had a nickname. They were called, bonus question, Sons of Thunder. Now think about that for a minute. What were they like to get a nickname like that? Here come the Sons of Thunder. He, he was about the fullness of his existence the robustness of it, and all of a sudden he meets Jesus and the pieces fall into place, which is why he's so passionate about this message of life. And in John's gospel and his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he mentions the word life about 71 times. It's translated in English life. Only about 15 of those are referring to heart-beating, lung-breathing life. The rest are referring to this restorative life of the gospel, a restored trajectory to us as human beings into the original purpose that, that we were made for. And he says at the end of his gospel, he says in John 20, 31, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He says, I have written my gospel that you may believe that he's the Messiah, and, and, and by believing you may have life in his name. Very first week of the series, we looked at this, part A, part B. Part A of that verse is orthodoxy that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right belief. Orthodoxy is not a bad word, it's a beautiful word, it's necessary, until it becomes dead orthodoxy, until it becomes me learning the doctrines and learning the rote things to say like I was doing with those German kids and not actually understanding them or embracing them. He says what's necessary is orthodoxy, but also vibrancy. Part B is vibrancy, that you may believe. By the way, in two weeks, we're going to talk about how to believe. What does it mean to believe? And we'll unpack that word. But 
this, by believing, you may know Jesus as Messiah, so be saved. Have that orthodoxy, that right belief, but also that leads to vibrancy, that by believing you may have life in his name. And in some ways, it's generational. Every, I've had conversations in the four-year throughout this series, and there's a generational thing we've talked about. A lot of, a lot of uh, the older crowd in churches are big on orthodoxy and get very, very frustrated with younger men and women who don't seem to care about orthodoxy. But I've talked to plenty of younger men and women and plenty of you who've said, until I see the vibrancy, I'm not going to be interested any longer in the orthodoxy. That's a, they're calling our bluff. It's a great thing to do because orthodoxy is not meant to be dead orthodoxy. It is meant to, to lead us to vibrancy. And this orthodoxy, vibrancy, both are necessary. It's not going around orthodoxy to get to vibrancy. It's going through orthodoxy to get to this dance of the gospel, not just learning the language. I was being very orthodox in the way I was speaking to those, uh, those German kids, but there was no vibrancy in what I was saying because it's just going through the motion. So it's understanding those two. So let's unpack that a little bit further, spend the rest of our time this morning on it by looking at one of Christ's most famous statements. In John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus makes this proclamation. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, but through me. Now. Apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. It's not apologizing for it, but it's defending the veracity, the cogency, the historicity of it. I'm involved on the faculty of a ministry called Summit Ministries, where we talk with kids who are about to enter university about the underpinnings that are so solid of our faith in Jesus. And this is one of the statements where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's his exclusivity statement bothers people in our pluralistic culture. By the way, in our culture, we've changed, we've practically speaking, have changed the definition of pluralism. Pluralism actually means allowing e pluribus unum, it's what we're founded on. All views are welcome here, all views are tolerated here. Pluralism has come to has been morphed into saying, all the, instead of all views are welcome, all views are valid. Well, that's a <clears throat> swan dive into irrationality. You can't say something is black and white at the same time. That's a different matter, but that all has to do with Christ saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. People struggle with that in our culture. And if you struggle with that, you've got to struggle with Jesus because he's, he's saying it about himself. Now, I want to put that verse, John 14, verse 6, back up one more time, and I want you to look at it, and because of the power of the second part of that, no one comes to the Father except through me, we rush to get to that part of the verse. Appropriately so, it's a very important part of the verse, but this is how I used to read this verse. Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I would just fly by that first statement, the way, truth, and life. In recent years, have started slowing down. I'm not minimizing the second half of that verse, but slowing down on the first. Look at those three words. I'm the way and the truth and the life. In essence, engaging with the gospel, which means good news, involves way, truth, and life. So we've got gospel here that we're wanting to began to support in terms of the way, in, in terms of our engagement. This easel has three legs to it. Let's say this one is called life, and this support is called truth, and this support is called way. Now think about Christ's statement just for a minute. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I've, I've looked. I've looked in the Greek. I've searched. He does not say Pick two out of the three. I'll be okay with that. Pick one out of the three. I'll be okay with that. He says, I'm way, I'm truth, and I'm life. And so often when we start engaging with the gospel in churches, especially if we're doing the little memorization thing where we're just going through the motions, most will say, okay, truth is important, way is important. 
There's some churches that are more truth church kind of churches, big on the teaching, some churches that are more way kind of churches. Uh, but most would say, I'm not sure that life, I mean, surely it doesn't carry the same weight as the others. And so we say, life's not really that important. And so we'll start just kind of minimizing it and thinking we can, we can support the gospel, we can engage with the gospel without life. No, you can't. The same goes with all three of these, the truth, the way, the life, they're all necessary. Any one of them missing will be a problem. So let me ask you this, what are churches typically known for? What are they most often known for? Lots of answers to that, but often they're known for way and truth. Take a look at a chart. What are we known for? Usually it's our morality, our teachings about morality, maybe our servanthood, our serving of the community and needs. That involves our wills, it involves doing, churches are about doing good. True? Yeah, sure. Also we're often known about to, as places of truth, in other words, ideology, instruction, conversion, evangelism, uh, we're, we're wanting to evangelize and teach and instruct, it involves uh, our minds, it involves thinking. Accurate? Yeah. Nothing wrong with either of these. It's part, it's part of the gospel. Key word there, part. Was Jesus about morality? Did he, was he all about morality? It's not a trick preacher question, just to answer the question. Was he about morality? Of course. The Sermon on the Mount, one of the most brilliant moral treatises in all of history. Was Jesus about ideology? Yes, brilliant teacher. But the disciples didn't just give their lives for Christ's morality and his ideology. In fact, Peter said when Jesus was saying, do you guys want to, lots of people are leaving when Jesus was raising the bar of commitment, said, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You alone are the one that have the words of life. So what can we be known for? What's the excitement of this vision is that we can be known as a place of way, as a church of truth, but also as a church of life. Let's bring up that next slide. We can be about morality, sure, ideology, yes, but also vibrancy. The top two are about orthodoxy. The bottom one's about vibrancy. It's not just about us engaging our wills and our minds, which are more easy, and those we will tend to adopt and we can start faking it. You can't fake it when it comes to the heart. What my friends and, and my German friends were saying is we want you to engage with, this lang with our language, not just in terms of your will, not just in terms of your mind, but your heart. It's not just about you doing it that Saturday night for a little amount of time and thinking, uh, it's about you being. The gospel is not just about doing and thinking, it's about being. And if we're going to transform any, any neighborhood or community or culture, it will be with the gospel, but with the gospel as Christ describes it, not as religious people have reduced it to, as to a code of conduct or a doctrinal statement. And many churches say, you want to be a part of us, sign our doctrinal statement and behave like we do. Did you hear one of the, one, the, 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 the girl who was talking about why do churches want to believe in Jesus? What happens when you do? She said, you know, the way you talk, the way you dress, they, they care about that. It's, it's far more than superficial things like that. We've been discussing this as a staff, and one of our young staff guys, great thinker, his name's, I, I, I won't tell you, his, I'll give you his initials, his initials are Bradley. And, um, <laughs> I did ask his permission uh, to say that. When my boys were growing up, I always had to get their permission before I used them in an illustration. I made that mistake one time and I paid for it at home. But anyway, sidebar. 
Bradley said, you know, as we're, we're talking about this. He says, so often in our churches, the way we invite people in is at the top going down. We, hey, we, way in truth, and then maybe they get to life, maybe they don't. He said, what would happen if we invited people to do the life of the gospel with us, and then as they were involved with our vibrancy, we start explaining where the vibrancy comes from. It comes from orthodoxy. It comes from the truth of Jesus. It comes from following the way of Jesus. If you're a philosopher, have a philosophy background, or maybe you took a philosophy class or have ever heard the word philosophy, uh, you might have heard of the transcendentals. They predate Jesus, even before Plato, but Plato was one that, that spent a lot of time talking about the, the three great transcendentals of reality, the reality of being human for a human individual, but also for a human culture, a human uh, civilization or society. Talked about the three transcendentals of goodness, truth, and beauty. And as I spend time meditating on Jesus saying he's way and truth and life, the brilliance of what he says pops out. These great minds had said the summation of our desires, of our longings, individually and corporately and in culture, are all rooted in goodness and truth and beauty. And Jesus says, I'm goodness, I am truth, I'm beauty, I'm way, I'm truth. I'm life. Now, when I say beauty, when the transcendentals, the philosophers will say beauty, it's not superficial beauty. It's not pretty. It's, it's what gives the nuance and the dance to the goodness and the truth. And they're all necessary, but typically what do we do when we look at those three, just what happened right over here, you ask some people. You ask a lot of religious people, a lot of church people, okay, when you're doing the gospel thing, you got way, truth, and life. Any of those optional? And a lot of people say, you know, I don't know about the life thing, but the way and truth, you can't, you can't compromise on those. You can't compromise on any of them. Same with goodness, truth, and beauty. When you have a civic um, governing structure, like in a society, in a town, and they're going through budget cuts. What goes first? Goodness, you know, the, the law enforcement to ensure goodness? Mm, no. How about truth? Educational system? No. How about beauty? What goes first? Always. Beauty is always seen as ancillary, seen as optional, seen as something that we don't really need. And we forget how important beauty is for us in our holistic engagement, even with, with the gospel, even, even what's going on in here, aspects of why we do what we do and how we gather. There are things that we don't notice because we take them for granted. And because we take them for granted, we don't notice them. But how about for a moment we would take out even some of the beauty stuff that we do for when we gather? What would it be like? And then all of a sudden, in terms of what you see lighting-wise, what you hear sound-wise, uh, we're here, but we've been taking something for granted. And the power of the gospel is not just its orthodoxy, but its vibrancy. The power of us engaging fully with our journey will involve goodness and truth, but also beauty. The power of us learning the gospel of Christ together will involve us engaging, yes, with way and truth, with orthodoxy, but also with life, which is vibrancy. Now, Hansers von Balthasar, that's quite a name, isn't it? He's a German theologian. Why don't we bring the beauty back just for a moment as we talk about it? Ooh, uh, it's like that all the time. I mean, go to your house. You've got beauty there that uh, all your walls aren't the same color. There's something about who we are as human beings in the holistic way. And when Jesus says way, truth, and life, he's addressing that. Hans Urs von Balthasar was a German aesthetic theologian. Aesthetics is the study of, of, of beauty. Uh, middle part of last century, he spent a lot of time talking about goodness and truth and beauty. 
And he writes in a treatise, uh, he wrote tons of stuff, brilliant, but this one is called The Glory of the Lord. And in it he says, beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach since only it dances as an, uncontained splen- in an, as an uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good and their inseparable relation to one another. So, beauty does a dance around the true and the good and we think it's ancillary. He goes on to say, our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness. And she will not allow herself to be separated and banned from her two sisters without taking them along with herself in an act of mysterious vengeance. We can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were the ornament of a bourgeois past, plenty of people say beauty's not necessary, it's goodness and truth. Life's not necessary, it's way and truth. Anybody who does that, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, you got like that civic uh, organization that says, okay, we're going to do away with beauty and keep goodness and truth. He says, what you don't realize, if you jettison beauty, she takes her two sisters with her, goodness and truth, in an act of mysterious vengeance. And what you're left with, whatever you're thinking is good is not truly good. Whatever you think is true is not good and true. Translate that to what Jesus is saying. Who is the logos? Who is the word? Who is the brilliance? He says, I'm way truth and life. If we think that we can get by somehow with truth and way without life, what we don't realize is that when we take the life out of our understanding the gospel, she takes her two sisters way and truth with her in an act of mysterious vengeance. And what we're left with is way that is not the way of Jesus and truth that is not the truth of Jesus. And if there's anybody here who's been in a mean religious arena with people that are bitter, people that are, in fact, I've had, I had a conversation between services, somebody saying, I grew up in a church environment where they not only didn't embrace life, they actually said way and truth requires that you don't embrace life. You got to get rid of beauty. It's bad. This life of the gospel, not sure about that. And as a result, we've got the opinion that has been formed in our culture of church as a place of way and truth without life. And there are tons of people that say, no, thank you. Tons of people that have been wounded by way and truth environments that were not life-giving. Now again, what we're referring to is not life without way and truth. So what's this embrace of the gospel look like on this foundation? Let me just quickly go back through those three words, three ingredients to this gospel of life in His name. It'll involve, number one, following His way, following the way of Jesus. John 14, 6 again, I am the way, as well as the truth and the life. In 1879, a polar expedition set out on the USS Jeanette, George DeLong was heading it up, and they had maps with them from cartographers of the day, map makers of the day. They were going to explore the North Pole, and there was uh, this, this widely held theory that the North Pole was not ice. You just had to get through the ice to get through the North Pole. In fact, the map maker, Dr. August Heinrich Peterman, believed there was an open polar ice-free sea teeming with marine life, quote, whose waters could be smoothly sailed much as one might sail across the Caribbean or the Mediterranean. Trevin Wax, and this is our time, says what the result was with those guys that followed, um, following, think about this, we're using a map from a guy who's never been there. It cost some of them their lives. We've got a culture that says we know the way to a fulfilled life. Do this, 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 and this. And it's ending up costing tons of people their lives, their eternities. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the way. I've given you instructions. 
Take this path. This is the way. And it's powerful. It's life-giving. But what happens when we religious people engage with the way without life? What's it look like? Suffocating legalism would be one thing. We come up with rules that they have never seen the pages of the Word of God. We've created them. One time I was connecting and regularly as a friend of mine who was not a follower of Christ and uh, but he would ask me the God question. He says, what is up? One time uh, we, we were having some time together. He says, what's up with, with religious people and, and their rules? That's what you're talking about. He said, well, my neighbor, I, our kids play together, and he's, he's, the neighbor's kind of weird, but our kids like each other, so I let them play there, and they've got a pool. It's a great pool. They've, uh, he, he allows them to go swimming on Sunday afternoons, but on Sundays, different from the other days of the week, he says, uh, he doesn't allow the kids to go out of the shallow end. He says, all the kids, you've you got to stay in the shallow end of the pool where your feet are touching the floor of the pool, the, the bottom. If you go into the deep end, that means you'll have to be swimming, and therefore, working and you're not allowed to work on Sunday. That's the kind of stuff that drove Jesus nuts. It's also the kind of stuff that keeps kids from learning to swim, but that's another matter. All right, bring up the, the list. It's these kind of rules. You keep going. Subcultural behavioral codes, works-based actions. So we're thinking the more good we do, the more God will love us. Empty ritual. Here's what Jesus said about it. Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law. This is the religious elite, the religious professionals, the, the, the church, so to speak, at the time. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Anybody got that verse on their refrigerator? That's brutal. The people that Jesus had his target on were not the, the godless of the day. They were the people that claimed to be godly but weren't. They had learned the language. They went through the, the ways. In fact, they created their own ways that were not rooted in Scripture. And it was without life. What's it look like? What does way look like when paired with life? Let me give you a few things. Biblical obedience. Obedience is absolutely essential to know this life of the gospel, but it's got to be biblical obedience, not the religious obedience and extra biblical, healthy God glorifying actions, not, not kind of God will love me if I do this, but God has already loved me, I want to love him back, life demonstrating and life giving behavior, life giving cultural influence. Uh, Matthew 19 verse 17, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So this life of the gospel requires the way of Jesus, which requires obedience, but it's biblical obedience. It's life-giving obedience. It's obedience that liberates. It doesn't suffocate. Jesus is saying, hey, my commandments are the owner's instructions for you to know the life that I alone can provide. And so it's not a matter of abandoning or jettisoning way, it's embracing the way of Jesus that's life-giving and life-demonstrating. So this whole gospel of life in His name for us to begin to let's, or continue practicing this together and living it out, it'll involve us following His way, but secondly, it will involve us embracing His truth. Embracing the truth of Jesus as well as following the way of Jesus. Again, John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth. Truth's a hard thing in our culture. I already mentioned the redefining of pluralism. Your truth's your truth, your truth's your truth, my truth's mine. Doesn't matter if they all disagreed. What matters is if you really believe it. Hmm. Law of gravity. 
Well, you know what? You can believe it or not believe it, it doesn't matter. Okay, go up 30,000 feet, ask them to open the door of the plane and say, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Let me tell you something, I don't care how much you don't believe it, it's still true. I saw a bumper sticker uh, a few weeks ago, and it's, I'd seen it years ago, I had, it's making a comeback or something. The bumper sticker says, Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it. And it, that's a cute little statement, but it sounds almost like a political statement. In other words, Jesus said it, I voted for him, and we're good. I almost want to pull up next to those people and say, there's one phrase in there that's not necessary, it's the I believe it part. Jesus said it, that settles it. Now, if you want to believe it or not, that's up to you, and that will determine whether you know life. But if I believe the law of gravity or not, doesn't change the existence of the law of gravity. The revealed, authoritative, absolute truth of the gospel is, is essential for us to experience this life. But if we engage with truth without life, what's it going to look like? Let me give you some phrases from Paul. He talks about meaningless talk or foolish, unprofitable arguments, or quarreling about words, or using it as a tool of judgment. I've had people tell me over the years, I've been beaten to death with the Bible by religious people. It's a tool of judgment instead of a light for my path. And religious people get real weird on this stuff. I, I need to research it more. I saw about a church and in Centerville, Georgia, and if you're from there and this is, this is more of a joke than, than real, I'm sorry, but the problem is most of us hear it and think it's very possible it could be true. It's a little town of 5,000 people that's got 48 Presbyterian churches. They've been splitting regularly over the years. The most recent one, they've got the name of it. Um, they, they use it by its initials. They refer to it because the initials are the PTRCWSRCCAPPC Church. The reason they call it that is because the name of it is the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal Westminsterian Sabbatarian Regulative Credo Communionist Amillennial Presuppositional Church of Centerville. Elder, uh, this Elder Paul Davis, teaching elder, says, we're up to six people on Sundays now. I know the numbers are not important, but we're hoping to grow a little bit more, but we now have a church with 100% doctrinal purity. I, I think it's a joke, but the problem is, if you've been around church for very long, you know there are elements of truth in that that are just scary. John 5, 39, Jesus says this, He says, you study the Scriptures. Here's a rebuke now, and there's a rebuke of people that do Bible study. It's not their study of the Bible that he's rebuking. He's rebuking their underlying orientation to the study. They're, they're engaging with truth without life. Here's what he says. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, these are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So it's not that this is a bad thing to study. He says, just make sure that you're not studying this to, to build up your own religious pride. What does engagement with truth and life look like? All of a sudden, you're looking at things like doctrine that illuminates and liberates. This is not to just enhance my religiosity, but my humanity to the glory of God. This is the owner's manual. It's the absolute truth. It's the law of, 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 the law of life in Christ Jesus that Paul talks about in Romans 8. You can say, I believe it or I don't believe it. It doesn't change whether it's true or not, just like the law of gravity. This written word, it, lead, it, it, it leads to the living word, Jesus. He's the Logos. Jesus is on, is on all these pages. Yes, even back here in the Old Testament. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus, by the word of his mouth, all things have been created. Rebellion happened, and he as Redeemer is talked about through the Old Testament coming in the New Testament. All the leaves of the, all the leaves of the New Testament pages, as C.S. Lewis says, are rustling. You just hear them. Saying that Jesus is up to something great. It's truth that sets us free, not just truth that enhances our pride, strengthens our position, and gives us something to yell at our culture.
We've been screaming orthodoxy at our culture for many years without modeling vibrancy. How's that working for us at Salt and Light? Life-giving cultural dialogue. First John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of religiosity. Now the word of life. Philippians 2.15, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. This is a book of life, not religion. And the, lie, the gospel of life in his name involves following his way and embracing his truth, but also experiencing his life. It's not just status, it's also experience. He says, I'm way, I am truth but I'm also life. And just like the others, I mean, some churches are more truth churches, some churches might be more way churches without the other two. There are some churches that might, they might attempt to be life churches because they sense this problem we're talking about, but the problem is they try to have life without way and truth. That's a problem too. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 2, preach the word, Paul writes to Timothy. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. We talked about it last week. The only time he ever defines it, he says that you may know, that you may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is in his high priestly prayer. He's speaking to the Father. So this life of the gospel, Jesus says, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth about who you are as a human being, where you came for, what your purpose is, where you're headed. The embrace of my way and truth should lead to life. And that life is an intimacy with the Father that permeates every aspect of our lives and our journeys and our stories, our work, our recreation, our grieving in a fallen world, our creativity, our embrace with beauty, our embrace of architecture, our embrace with the arts, of mathematics. Every nook and cranny of our lives has the claim of Jesus on it. And he says, my gospel is to reorient you, to redeem you, but to restore you to the life that a human being is intended for underneath the glory of God, relating with him in intimacy. It's this aspect of dancing, yeah. But it's not, we, we shrink. We all have that tendency. Some of you are way people. Some of you are true. I'm a truth guy. And I've had to learn the life stuff. And the American church what Northland can be in partnership with other churches is to be a voice for the gospel in a fraying culture, a culture that needs way, truth, but also life. But sadly, we in America, we are big on the way and truth, but not so much on the life. William Williman from Duke Divinity School, he wrote this sardonically years ago. He says, you and I can give thanks at the locus of Christian thinking appears to be shifting from North America and Northern Europe where people just write rules and obey them to places like Africa and Latin America where people still know how to dance. I want to invite you to a dance of the gospel. I want you to invite me to that dance. I spoke about this this summer to some college students. They're about to go into college, 200 of them in this room. This way, truth, and life. And the girl had time for questions at the end, and the girl raised her hands. Second row in, right there. Tears streaming down her face. And she said, I grew up in a church. The fact that I am here now to talk about Christianity before going to college is a miracle in and of itself because of the wounds that I carry from my church. And I want to know this. Why has my church not taught me the life of the gospel, but only way and truth? I, I said, I'm so sorry. Let's talk more. Any of you want to talk with her? We can talk afterwards. About 30 kids came up front. You guys, hold our feet to the fire. 
Make sure I'm not, the rest of you, there's a lot of our student ministries folks are up here. Hold our feet to the fire and make sure that we model vibrancy along with teaching orthodoxy. Absolutely. But we need you guys to teach us vibrancy as well. And you need to teach us orthodoxy. The gospel is beautiful. It's not just right. It's beautiful. And if the gospel is not enabling you and me to dance as a human being in a fallen world, we're missing what Jesus is saying. May God enable us as his people to get the gospel, to live the gospel, to preach the gospel, to dance the gospel, to follow the gospel in the name of the one who is way, truth, and also life. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have called us to something pretty special. I pray that we'll get it, that we won't just go through and do the speeches in German without understanding the heart. May we not just do the speeches in Christianese without understanding the heart. May we get the orthodoxy. May we not hesitate for one moment on way and truth. May uh, the, the biblical obedience and the deep theological thinking be part of who we are. But may it lead not to a religious smugness, but instead to a dance of the gospel. And sometime that will be a dirge dance because we'll authentically engage with a fallen world, but we'll do so in the name of the one who is indeed beautiful. I, I pray that this week we'll engage with beauty as well as truth and goodness. And that starts with us relating with you as our heavenly father in intimacy and understanding. You're not just way and you're not just truth. Your life, you're not just good, you're not just true. You really are beautiful.